Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. I'm so excited to have Brian Elliott here with us today. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Laura. Glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I would love for you to start by telling us a little bit about you and your career and kind of how yeah. you got to where you are today. Um, sure. So the the quick nickel tour is started out as a consultant way back in my early days at Boston Consulting Group. Uh, in the late 90s, jumped into the dot-com boom, dot-com um, 1.0 technology companies. And so it's been about a dozen years in startups um, as a startup CEO, uh, had a lot of fun, uh, a lot of uh, rough times also, but learned um, kind of through the school of hard knocks, a lot of things about leading teams and building culture and building organizations. And then went on from there to uh, to Google, where I worked for five years, leading a big team from a product perspective and then Slack uh, for about five years. And then the most fun that I had was last three years building a group called Future Forum, which was a uh, think tank around the future of work. Um, but honestly, I had just as much fun um, working with a team of people that I really loved working with uh, as much as anything. So that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. That's so good. So I'm curious, you are a LinkedIn top voice, and that, which is pretty cool. And you really... Mm -hmm. Yeah. You share your insights about the future of work. So I'd love for you to just go a little deeper on that and maybe yeah. um, talk about your vision for the future of work and why it matters so much to you. Yeah, what, the reason why I do this is because I really do think that we have this opportunity coming out of the pandemic to rethink how we work together in ways that are better for people broadly from all kinds of backgrounds that also can improve outcomes for organizations. I think too much of the conversation can feel polarizing of executives versus employees. When I think the reality is if we just take a step back and kind of ask a few more questions about conventional wisdom out there, there's all kinds of things that we can do to uh, make work uh, more productive, but also more fun, more enjoyable to build much more inclusive, engaging teams and organizations. They, at the end of the day, uh, get people enlisted in the broader mission of the company to really um, create amazing outcomes. Yeah, for real. I mean, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? It just seems like no. we have a tendency as human beings to be, it's this or that, one or the other, right? Yeah. Yes or no. And these things that are kind yeah. of in the middle that or polarities when we're trying to solve for two things at once, somehow we just don't do that very well, do we? <laughs> No. And I, I learned this myself, like I learned in my startup days that that phrase culture eats strategy for breakfast is so true, right? That mm -hmm. getting my team to understand each other, to understand not just the mission they were on, but to really trust one another uh, uh, was the most essential ingredient to actually creating outcomes. And both at Google and Slack, I, I stepped into situations in both organizations where I was told that the product had a problem or the business wasn't going in the right direction. But the more essential part of 
figuring that out was the team wasn't aligned. The team wasn't going in the same direction. The team was disagreeing with one another. And all of that energy and challenge was really what was holding us back, not the product strategy. I also know that you wrote a book. Um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about it. So it's How the Future Works, which I think is a great title. Um, oh. Yeah, that's a great title. So tell us about why you wanted to write it and kind of what the main theme or premise is. Yeah, so How the Future Works is a bit of an audacious title. The, the subtitle is uh, um, uh, Leading Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives. Um, Sheila Subramanian, Helen Cup, uh, who are my two co-founders on Future Forum, uh, wrote the book with me. And the reason why we did it is we really, uh, you know, over the course of a couple of years have been doing research uh, around what was working for people and what wasn't and for whom around flexibility at work. Like not just the questions about how many days a week should you be coming into the office, but how do you use your time together, right? How do you actually think about, you know, how you put teams together that are actually more inclusive, more engaging, more connected with one another. And the research was telling us all kinds of insights that were about people and about how you actually build that type of energy and, and positive momentum. But what we did is we then combined that with case studies from a variety of companies. One of the things that we found challenging was, you know, people would say, well, flexibility is great, but it only works for tech companies, right? Because sure, if you're a tech company, you can have people working in all kinds of different locations. But what we did is we worked with companies like Genentech that had R&D workers that had to be in a lab a couple of days a week, or, you know, Levi's, which had frontline workers in retail stores, Royal Bank of Canada, which had, you know, uh, both bankers in, in back offices, but also people sitting in branches. And how do you think about how you get those teams of people more engaged in the purpose of their organization? How do you leverage flexibility as a key tool to give people a sense of autonomy, but also to uh, get them focused on driving outcomes together? And so the book itself is combination of the research plus those case studies from all those different companies it gives you kind of a new playbook for rethinking how you build better outcomes, but also how you build more inclusive organizations. That's so good. Case studies and stories just help us like believe that it's possible, right? <laughs> that, you know, real, yeah. real people have done this. And so then we can imagine it for ourselves, I think. Can you share a little bit more mm -hmm. this, this concept of flexibility, this concept of, you know, having flexible work arrangements? Do you have any specific like practical um, tools or things that you've seen in these case studies or in other experiences that you've had that really work? Yeah, tons of them. And, and this is one of the things that I found as an issue because a lot of senior executives come into this um, knowing only one way of working because, look, I've been there myself. Three decades of work experience means I was very used to nine to five, five days a week yep. in the office is where and when and how work happened, Right. And what we found over the course of the pandemic is we questioned a lot of that conventional wisdom, but we didn't necessarily give people the tools to do anything different. And so I'll give you two, two specific, specific examples. One is location flexibility, which is really important for people. Most people actually do want to come together with their team. They just want to do it for one or two days a week. The challenge is each of those teams can be very different. The needs of a sales team is probably pretty different from an engineering organization. And if an executive is thinking about this, they might sit there and say, hey, look, the answer is 
Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in the office is the right solution for all of us. When the reality is those teams have different needs and those people don't even necessarily show up in the same city, let alone the same building, right? Because we've hired people in all kinds of locations. So what we've done is we've created and leveraged this concept called team level agreements. A team level agreement might be something like a sales organization that says, hey, you know what? You're all regionally based. We really want people to be in the office and pick a day of the week in New York, in California, in Texas. That's going to be your core anchor day. And that's going to be Tuesdays as much as possible, because that way we're all together to do a pipeline review. But an engineering organization might be more spread out. And instead, what you're thinking about is my team gets together once a quarter for a week to do not just sprint planning and a quarterly plan, but for meals together for relationship building, for time together with one another. And so that's one aspect of it that helps people rethink like how you use your time together. The other that's even more important that we found in the research is we ignore schedule flexibility. We ignore the fact that the bigger problem people have is we've managed to jam so many 30 minute meetings on everybody's calendars. It's impossible to find a two hour block of time to do heads down work. And so finding a way to give people schedule flexibility, put, to put limits on how many days a week somebody uh, is asked to be in meetings, but also to put boundaries around the after hours uh, communication expectations. If you can do that, you can get a lot more satisfaction out of your employees, a lot more productivity out of your employees. But it requires tools, things like test out doing a maker week. Once a quarter, cancel all of your recurring meetings. And use that week to not only give people a break, but to look at all the recurring meetings on your calendar and figure out this meeting used to be eight people. It's now 32. Does everybody really need to be there every week? Or the challenge that you might have around like, does this, you know, does this meeting even serve the purpose that we intended it for? We're now, we've been running this meeting for three years straight. Is it really actually useful and helpful? Or could we maybe just do it once a month instead of every week? So Practices like that that kind of intervene in the habits that we have, the assumptions that we have, are really good circuit breakers to give people a break, to give them a little, little bit more flexibility, and to help us question why we do what we do. That's so good. I mean, I remember um, one of my last jobs having regularly having 16 meetings in a day, right? Three, 30 minute back to yeah. back to back to back to back. I mean, in retrospect, I don't know why. I let that happen because it was so clear yeah. that it was miserable, right? There was so much kind of shifting from one topic to another that by the time you warmed up to it, it was time for the next one. And it's just, it was such, such a bad use of time. And it's just somehow we just get, we buy into this idea that we have to do it this way. And so I love your, your suggestion around just look at these darn recurring meetings and think if we still need them. Um, I just started working yeah. with, uh, with another company um, and doing like a fractional role. And I caught myself like, let's have a meeting and let's set up a recurring meeting, you know, like that, that tendency. And it, what's driving that is this desire to connect yeah. with people and get to know them. Right. Does it have to be a recurring meeting? Exactly. No, it doesn't have to be a recurring meeting, Laura. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I, I'm completely yeah, with you. Yeah, there's so much of that that we, we just stumble into it, right? Especially in large organizations that have become heavily meeting dependent, where meetings are actually sort of quasi work-like in the first place. 
And you get up in the morning and you open up your calendar. You're like, well, I guess I'm just doing all that all day long. And then what happens is nighttime is in theory when you're going to get your core work done when you're already exhausted, you know, from the day that's gone by and you're not doing your best work. One of the pieces of research we did, we asked executives specifically, like are meetings effective? Executives told us that roughly 50% of the meetings that their teams were having had little to no impact on the outcomes of their organizations. That's, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours spent in these things. When we ask employees, you know, why do you go to meetings that aren't, aren't contributing? The number one answer right around 40% was because I had to be there because it was mandatory, right? And I'm feeling the pressure to do it. So what we have to do is step back and say, hey, look, th there's two aspects of it. There's the, how do you get more efficient in meetings, which is, is this to have a debate? Is this to actually make a decision? Or is this for the development of people or a team? Debates, decisions, and development are really good uses of time together. If not, can we do it asynchronously? Meaning, can we just share the content and ask for commentary back and forth? The other thing, though, is we got to make sure we don't get too hyper-focused on efficiency because that weekly staff meeting that you've got with your team if that becomes all about the efficiency, you're missing out on the fact that the, the, that meeting is there for a purpose also, which is relationship building, right? I love kicking off staff meetings with an icebreaker question that's more social in nature because it's just a way for us to remind each other that we're human to get to know each other a little bit. The, the seasonal one at the moment is um, where do you stand on pumpkin, lot, pumpkin spice lattes? <laughs> Because I've just I've, I've always found I've always found people on the opposite sides of that one, and then you get a fifteen minute long you know debate about whether these things are gross or tremendous, and it's just a way for people to connect with one another. Completely, completely, and that's so important, right? Because we were you were talking about earlier how important trust is, how important it is for people to feel connection, to feel a sense of belonging. That's huge, right? I absolutely am with you yeah. that you got to still make the time for that and authentically, right? You can't just jump through the hoops and, you know, do it and say, okay, now, now we're doing our icebreaker. It has to be fun and people have to feel like you yeah. really want to hear their responses. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's so important. So let's not throw that term baby. Yeah. If you, if you, <laughs> yeah, if, you um, if you sit there and say, okay, we're going to do an icebreaker, but we're going to time box it three minutes for the icebreaker. <laughs> Okay. Wrong signal, boss. Uh, what you're saying is you're just, you're being performative when it comes to building relationships. I actually want you to build a relationship with me. Uh, it actually matters to me. Completely, completely. So I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about, though this isn't really that shifting gears from what we were just talking about, but the idea of purpose and values and oh, yeah. you know, how important it is for people to feel a sense of purpose through the work, but also feel like their values are connected to the values of the organization in some way, right? We wouldn't expect a perfect 100% overlap in your own personal values with what the organization values, but boy, there should be some, there should be some overlap or yeah. it's going to be really hard. So I was curious about um, maybe your perspective on aligning your own personal values with the values at work and why you think that matters. This is this has always been something that's important to me uh, personally, and it's something that we've seen kind of grow generationally. And I also think it's something that got greater prominence over the course of the pandemic because we spend so much of our of our lives at work, right, or in work, or with the people that we work with. And 
you know, stepping back from it, you really understand uh, over the course of the pandemic, everything else was going on in the world around us and caused people to sit there and say, is this a group of people that I like working with? Is this a cause that I, that I feel is valuable? And you can also see it generationally, right? The, the growth in desire for my work to have purpose and meaning for me um, is super high. It's been higher in millennials. It's super high in, in Gen Z as well. But it basically comes back to is all of this time and energy that I'm putting into this thing somehow contributing to you know, a better world uh, around me? And if you can do that, you're going to get a lot more um, alignment of purpose uh, for people. You're going to get them to go the extra mile if you also, by the way, build trust with them uh, in ways that you won't if it's purely transactional in nature. And and there, I get it. There are there are jobs out there, and there are plenty of them that are contractual in nature, um, and that the work is there to serve a purpose of getting paid. And then I focus on fulfillment outside of my job. But even in frontline worker jobs, for example, we've seen this in research that um, my friends at Boston Consulting Group did. People don't leave jobs because of, of pay issues. More often than not, the reason why they leave a job is their manager was a jerk or the team that they were working in just wasn't fun or they didn't feel like they um, had opportunity to further their career or that the work itself had value. It's those emotional aspects of work that actually get you to build sticky relationships with your employees and that make people more excited, more engaged, more willing to go the extra mile for your customers. So purpose, values, trust uh, in an organization, again, is going to build not just happier employees. It's going to actually build happier customers and, and better organizational outcomes, too. I love that, Brian, so much, the emotional aspects, right? And that's, it ends up being a lot of what I study in the work that I do. And I feel like organizations are so confused yeah. about the topic of emotions, right? Like we do a lot of emotional yeah. intelligence training for managers and leaders, but then regularly say things like, keep your emotions at the door, or this has nothing to do with emotions. <laughs> and I think we're really yeah. confusing people about, do we care about how you feel or do we not care about how you feel? Right. And I think people are kind of in this yeah. weird space in between not knowing, you know, and even not having the words for that too, like words to describe your emotions at work. Um, so I think that yeah. that's, that's a huge part of our evolution of work and where we are right now is trying to figure that out. Yeah. Laura, your expertise here goes a lot deeper than mine. But I've seen this not only in conversations with, with executives, I've seen it in conversations with teams too about figuring out what are the boundaries, right? Like bring your whole self to work can really scare people on a couple of different dimensions. Like, what does that mean? And, and to me, having worked this with a couple of teams, it's, um, it is hard and it requires that you get to know people as human beings uh, and, and who they are and, and where they're from and what their own concerns are. What you're really trying to do is get it to the spot where they can feel safe sharing, hey, look, I've got something going on in my life. I do or don't want to talk about it, but it's impacting me. And so this is not going to be an easy week for me. I need a break. And knowing that and understanding that is just really important in terms of not making a situation worse, having a, pe a person feel like they are supported. Um, and that ends up being really key. You're not there to be their therapist, but you are there to make sure that you understand what's going on more broadly. I also think like we also are at danger of companies going too far the other direction. The we're all a family here 
No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. But it's really important that we have the ability for, to develop relationships with one another that go beyond the professional, right? We find friends at work. We find colleagues at work. We find people that we want to be able to depend on and get to know more deeply. That doesn't make you a family, but it does make those relationships really important and really valuable personally, but also in terms of when times get hard, that we know we can rely on one another when the business turns in a different direction. And you're not going to get there if it's an entirely transactional relationship, right? You, if you've not built that sort of trust in those relationships in the first place. Yeah, completely. I know it's such a it's such a risk and a downside, I think, to do the to talk about it like a family because you know, hopefully families don't, you know, end the relationship between each other on a regular basis, right? Hopefully families, right. you know, are committed forever to each other. And that's just not the case in organizations. There's no way that that can be true. And so I think it's just set up for a lot yeah. of um, unfulfilled expectations if we talk about organizations like families. Um, but I love your point. of Exactly. Exactly. Relationships and trust. Yeah. Families, families. Uh, well, at least I hope they don't run layoffs. Um, I'm sure someone out there has run a layoff in their family somehow. But um, you know, I've, I've been through the situation myself a number of times, and there are times when you know the economy turns completely sideways, the fate of the business is not in good shape, and you have to make hard decisions about you know who's who you're going to be able to keep and who you're going to have to let go. Families don't do that, uh, and so. But what it comes back to is the way that you treat people in those situations, meaning the way that you treat the people who are leaving is going to impact the people who are staying that you need to have be engaged in your business going forward. And so if you're really thinking about it, you know, it's the people that are staying that you're concerned about. But the way you treat the people who are having to be let go is going to impact their own trust in you going forward, their own engagement in your organization and your purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what would you say are the top three pieces of advice um, you might give to people who are looking to build a meaningful career? Um, number one, uh, be a continual learner. I mean, this is this has been one of my key aspects of, of my own career is um, when I got to a point in a job where I wasn't really learning anymore, it was time to find another job. Right. Because you're not just there to fulfill, you know, the, the mission of the business. You're also there to learn, to develop, to grow uh, as a person, to build new skills uh, and new capabilities. And so if you find yourself stagnating, it's probably time to find something else. The second is don't expect that your career is always going to be up and to the right. Um, right. The, 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 the whole analogy of, you know, your career can be a jungle gym is one that actually has worked out pretty well for me. There's at least three times in my career where I've where I've moved from a higher title, um, larger team job to a smaller team, lower title job. And the first time or two I did it, it was honestly pretty hard, but I got over it and I learned from that that actually those types of moves are are hugely effective in terms of the long run that they're setting up for you. And the, and the third bit of advice, I guess, is um, don't work with jerks. <laughs> life's life's just too short. Um, the the you know you spend all your time with these people at work. Um, you spend your time in this environment. 
um, it is really hard because some people don't have a choice of getting out of what can be a toxic environment, but don't spend time in toxic environments. It, it's only going to make, you know, you feel worse about yourself as a person. Uh, get out as fast as you can. Those are so good. Those are like the best three. I, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Brian, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Laura, for having me. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate your time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.